1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White. So I written and so it say We are a twin planet. Not many of us normally think of the moon as a companion planet, but that is in effect what it is. Most moons are tiny in relation to their master planet. The Martian satellites of Phobos and Deimos, for instance, are only about 10 kilometers in diameter. Our moon, however, is more than a quarter the diameter of the Earth, which makes ours the only planet in the solar system with a sizable moon in comparison to itself, except Pluto, which doesn't really count because Pluto is itself so small. And what a difference that makes to us. Without the moon's steady influence, the Earth would wobble like a dying top, with goodness knows what consequences for climate and weather. The moon's steady gravitational influence keeps the Earth spinning at the right speed and angle to provide the sort of stability necessary for the long and successful development of life. This won't go on forever. The moon is slipping from our grasp at a rate of about 1.5 inches a year. In another 2 billion years, it will have receded so far that it won't keep us steady, and we will have to come up with some other solution. But in the meantime, you should think of it as much more than just a pleasant feature in the night sky. For a long time, astronomers assumed that the moon and Earth either formed together or that the Earth captured the moon as it drifted by. We now believe that about 4.5 billion years ago, a Mars-sized object slams into Earth, blowing out enough material to create the moon from the debris. This was obviously a very long time ago. If it had happened in 1896 or last Wednesday, clearly we would be nearly not as pleased. Which brings us to our fourth and in many ways crucial consideration. As fly anglers... What do we need to know about the moon and its effects on Earth? In this, 
Well, the last paragraph of the sentence isn't from the book, but everything else is from the chapter Life Itself by Bill Bryson in a short history of nearly everything. And thus, we shall start the next educational podcast in my series. This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, episode number 264, Tides. A lot of you are probably just going to skip over this because it's going to be a nerdy, Latin and long sentence based podcast. But as a person that's trying to educate others, this is an integral part in my teachings of fly fishing over the past 11 years of the podcast. If I was a professor of fly fishing, this would be a specific lecture on its own where the next part two of this podcast is going to be how fly fishing relates to the tides. This, of course, would do much better in a classroom environment where I would have visual aids for you to follow along, but you're just going to have to sit back and listen while you're home at quarantine and enjoy this. By the end of this podcast that I'm about to record, it is Monday, the 30th of March, 2020. I believe that all of Virginia will be under a quarantine of don't leave your house. However, if you do plan on leaving your house, I still have flies for sale. Most specifically, I have shad flies on Etsy and eBay. You can buy them in groups from $45 to $100. You can pick them up and I will give you more free flies if you prevent me from having to go to the post office. I can drop them off locally if you're within the Northern Virginia area while I'm allowed to go out. I also have bass and trout flies for sale that you can purchase a la carte on my website or you can purchase in groups from Etsy. The local fly shops are closed right now. So other than having someone like myself tie for you, if you're not a tire, you're going to be out of luck for flies. So let's now figure out this title podcast, which was based on me giving a classroom presentation to my daughter's class on how the tides affect my job. And that will be part two. Part one is all about the tides. I'm going to talk about the moon, the types of moons, tides, weather, geography, tidal organisms, tide misconceptions, and finish off with some bizarrely strange facts that I've been able to procure from the internet. Let's start the podcast. If the earth were a perfect sphere without large continents, all areas on the planet would experience two equally proportioned high and low tides every lunar day. The large continents on the planet, however, block the westward passage of the tidal bulges as the Earth rotates. Unable to move freely about the globe, these tides establish complex patterns within each ocean basin that often differ greatly from tidal patterns of adjacent ocean basins or other regions of the same ocean basin. So much 1996. And now let's dive deeper into the moon. If you ever wanted to know your exact distance from the moon, you can go to timeanddate.com slash astronomy slash moon slash distance.html. The tides we experience on Earth are caused by the sum of the moon's gravitational gradient and the sun's gravitational gradient. The tidal effect of the moon on Earth is more than twice as strong as that of the sun. The sun also generates considerable tidal forces. The sun's gravitational pull on Earth is around 178 times stronger than that of the moon. The proximity to Earth makes it affect tides more than the sun. The moon only has about 1 100th the mass of the Earth. 
the moon follows an elliptical path around the Earth. The distance between them varies by about 31,000 miles over the course of a month. The moon's gravitational pull generates tidal force. The tidal force, therefore, causes Earth and its water to bulge out on the sides closest to the moon and the side farthest from the moon. These bulges are called high tides, and when you're not in a bulge, you're at low tide. As the Earth rotates, your region of Earth passes through both of these bulges each day. The daily pattern of high and low tides is caused by the rotation of the Earth. When you're in one bulge, you experience a high tide. When you're not in one of the bulges, you experience a low tide. This cycle of two high tides and two low tides occurs most days on most of the coastlines of the world. The tide generating force is the sum of gravitational and centrifugal forces. The combination of them causes the gravitational attraction between Earth and the Moon and the Sun and the rotation of the Earth-Moon and Earth-Sun systems. Forces combine to deform Earth's ocean surface into a roughly egg shape with two bulges. A solar day would be known as 24 hours of time. A lunar day would be 24 hours and 50 minutes. A diurnal cycle is a pattern every 24 hours as a result of one full rotation of the Earth around its own axis. Diurnal tides are the product of one low tide and one high tide occurring roughly within a 24-hour period. The Gulf of Mexico has only one high tide and one low tide each day. A semi-diurnal cycle is when two highs and two lows are about the same height. That is the United States East Coast. In Washington, D.C., it goes up and down a little over three feet per day. A mixed tide is if the high and low tides differ in height. This pattern is called mixed because you have one that's high and one that's low, and they're different throughout the day. This is known on the U.S. West Coast. There are also different types of moons. The full moon appears full when the Earth is between the moon and the sun. A new moon appears dark or can't be seen. The new moon does not pass in front of the sun, but simply near it, between the Earth and the sun. There is a new moon or full moon about every two weeks, and this occurs once a month because the moon takes about a month to orbit the Earth. The moon must be at the new phase in order for a solar eclipse to take place, and the tidal influence of the sun and the moon combine to create wide-ranging tides. The high tide is higher, while the low tide sinks way low down. The supermoon is when a full moon or new moon occurs close to the moon's perigree when the moon is close. A micromoon is when a full moon or new moon occurs close to the moon's apogee, which means it's far. Super, it's closer. Micro, it's farther. An anomalistic month is when the time it takes for the moon to travel from perigree to perigree, which takes around 27.55455 days. A moonrise is the best time to view the moon. An illusion mixes with the reality to make a low-hanging moon that looks unnaturally large and close when compared to foreground objects. You may remember this from the album cover of R.E.M. Green, or most recently on social media pictures when people take pictures of others holding the moon on a hillside or have it resting on their back or have it landing in a glass of bourbon or what have you. It will appear larger when it's closer to the horizon. A young moon, 
is a small crescent you see near the horizon. I believe one of Ned Flanders' children referred to it as God's thumbnail. Expect the most extensive tidal range of the year because at the equinoxes, the moon and sun are aligned with the equator. The solar tide coincides with the lunar tide because the sun and the moon are aligned with Earth. Their gravitational forces combine to pull the ocean's water in the same direction. Now, if we were not quarantined under coronavirus, we would be packing right now to drive to the Florida Keys, where I would be experiencing some high and low tides while fly fishing. A good thing to do before you plan a trip is to go ahead and check those tides to see if there may be an extreme high or low tide predicted based just on the moons. If you factor in weather while you're there, which I'll discuss later, your tides will be even more messed up. In North America, we have names for our full moons that dates back to, well, when the colonies conquered the Native Americans. We still keep some of those names, and these are the full moons for the year 2020. January 10th, we had a wolf moon or a penumbral lunar eclipse, which was not visible in the United States. February 9th, we had a snow moon. March 9th, we had a worm moon, which was a supermoon. In April of next month, April 7th, we're going to have a pink supermoon. May 7th is the flower supermoon. June 5th will be the strawberry moon and a penumbral lunar eclipse, not visible in the U.S., womp womp. July 5th, a buck moon and a penumbral lunar eclipse. August 3rd is the sturgeon moon. September 2nd is the harvest moon. October 1, the hunter's moon. October 31 is a blue moon. November 30th is the beaver moon and a penumbral lunar eclipse. And December 29th is going to be the cold moon. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Now let's discuss how these moons affect our tides. For those of you that live in the central United States that have never experienced a tide, this may be some very bizarre information for you. If you have experienced tides, I'm going to give you a little bit of scientific background on now what causes them. Tides are the effect of ocean water responding to a gravitational gradient. Tidal patterns from one specific location to the next vary because of local factors such as water depth, shore shape, and ocean currents. This does not include weather anomalies at this moment. There are different types of tides. The tidal reach is the range in height between high and low tide. A flood tide is the change from low to high. I'll refer to that with clients and on podcasts as incoming tide. The ebb tide is changed from high tide to low tide, which I refer to as outgoing tide. A storm tide can be caused by a combination of storm surge and normal tidal movements. A tidal bore is created by the incoming tide into a narrow bay or river, waves which travel against the direction of the current. There are specific places around the world where you can go to a tidal river and set up at the bottom of the river and wait for the incoming tide. People will have kayaks and stand-up paddle boards and other floating devices, and they will ride the tidal bore miles 
and miles and miles upriver as the earth is pushing that water up. I should say the moon is pushing that water up. The tidal bore is an incoming tide into a narrow bay or river, and you can physically ride those on a personal flotation device. I believe there's a train or a shuttle at the top of the river that brings people back down to where they started. Now, a spring tide is the tide following a full or new moon. The gravitational forces of the moon and the sun combine to pull the ocean's water in the same direction. This gives a more extreme tide, which is caused by the earth, moon, and sun lining up, which happens at times of full moon or new moon. The lunar and solar tides reinforce each other. A word I don't get to use too often is fortnightly. Spring tides happen fortnightly or every two weeks. The strong high tides move higher up the shore, which creates the greatest difference between high and low tides. The last of our tides is the king tide. This occurs during a perigean spring tide when the earth, moon, and sun are aligned at perigree and perihelion, which means near the sun. We'll go into depth in that later. Predicted highest tides and lowest tides will occur during king tides. If you're planning a vacation to a tidal location, be sure to, tech, be sure to check what king tide may be occurring while you're there. These are regular and predictable events reoccurring multiple times a year, and they show what average water levels might look like in the future based on sea level rise projections. Tides can extend further inland and lead to local floodings, which is something we see more often now in Washington, D.C. King tides, if it occurs under storm conditions, can cause extreme storm surges that can lead to significant damage to property and coastlines. This may have been what caused Superstorm Sandy to do so much damage to the New Jersey and New York coastlines. Peregrine. Peregrine is the moon closest to Earth. The moon is 14% closer to Earth during Peregrine, which happens once about every 28 days. The moon's rotation around its axis speeds up when it is at perigree. The moon's orbit around Earth is elliptical, and the point of the orbit closest to Earth is called perigree. Full moon or new moon happens as the moon is around its closest point to Earth, and the gravitational pull of the moon is strongest. Tide-generating forces are higher than usual. The closer the moon, the more effects it has on the tides. There's a perigee in spring tide, mentioned briefly above. Peri usually means around, but in this case, near. Gi is based on Gaia, meaning Earth. The first pair describes the distance in relation to the sun, the second in relation to the Earth. Again, this is the point when the moon is closest to the Earth, typically between six to eight times a year. The new or full moon coincides closely in time with the perigree of the moon. Supermoons lead to even larger variations between high and low tides. The difference from a normal spring tide is only about 5 centimeters or 2 inches larger in variation. It is not uncommon for high tides during a perigean spring tide to be more than a foot higher than high tides during apogean spring tides. Example, Anchorage, Alaska, which has a tidal range of over 30 feet. The difference between spring tides can be three feet or more at high tide. Perigean spring tides combined with seasonal changes in the low tide 
and mean sea level may cause minor coastal flooding in some low-lying areas, often referred to as high tide flooding or nuisance flooding due to strong onshore winds and barometric pressure changes. This is when sandbags are taken out in Old Town Alexandria and Annapolis, Maryland to prevent water going up onto the streets and into storefronts. An apogee or micro-moon is when the moon is furthest from Earth. If it's closest, if the moon is closer, it has more effects. If it's distant, it has less effects. The furthest point of approach to the Earth is when the moon is at apogee. It's about 14 days following the perigree, and the moon's orbit around Earth, again, is elliptical, and the point farthest from Earth is known as apogee. Apo meaning away, and G again is based on Gaia. Location, closer or further, and then Earth. The moon's rotation around its axis slows down when at apogee. And when the full or new moon is around its furthest from Earth, the point at which the gravitational pull of the moon is weakest. It is the opposite. This is the opposite of a supermoon. Lunar tide raising forces are smaller. Apogean spring tides have around 5 centimeters or 2 inches, smaller variation than normal spring tides. And if I meant perigean spring tides, we're going to do perihelion with apogee or micro moons. Peri again means near around, and helion is based on the Greek word helios, meaning sun. When the Earth is closest to the sun, occurs around January 2nd of each calendar year, the tidal ranges are enhanced. Aphelion, AP of aphelion derives from the Latin prefix that means away from, and helion again is based on the Greek word helios, meaning sun, when the earth is furthest from the sun, around July 2nd. The tidal ranges are reduced. The distant sun means less sunlight for our planet, does not mean it gets colder. So you can guarantee that during perihelion, I'll be at my in-laws in Ohio, and aphelion, I will be at my in-laws during July 2nd. So I'm there in December, January, and I'm there in July. Let's talk about a neap tide. Had to dig this one out. Couldn't find it in my Latin Greek derivatives books. So I found it as an Anglo-Saxon word meaning without power. Neaps always occur, and that's N-E-A-P. They occur seven days after spring tides. The tide following the first and last quarter of the moon phases. The gravitational force from the moon and the sun counteract each other at these two points of a lunar month. It occurs without regard to the season. The tidal influence of the sun partially cancels out the tidal influence of the moon. The variation between high and low tide is at a bare minimum. The range between high and low is quite subdued. Highs are not very high and lows are not very low. The smallest tidal ranges will always be around the quarter or half moons. Now we've learned about tides, let's learn about the anatomy of a shoreline's intertidal zone, where the water is, how often it's there, and what organisms live there. These are the organisms you may want to match the hatch with when visiting an area. In Cape Cod, I brought shrimps. When I'm fishing in Florida, I have little sand fleas or little clousers, little shrimps. There are clam flies you can use. 
which are designed mostly for carp, but things in the intertidal zone eat them. So let's discuss the anatomy of a shoreline intertidal zone. And if you were lucky enough to ever go to Wallops Island for a couple of days in high school or college living around here, you got to experience all these in the lab and paper and then out in the field where we collected things. I'll have pictures of these locations on the blog from my trips to Wallops Island and other places. The shoreline intertidal zone is defined as where land meets the water. It is underwater during high tide and exposed to air during low tide. You also have a complex food chain going along in intertidal zones. For example, tide pools, which I'll talk about later, you have algae and other plants that are eaten by plant-eating zooplankton, which is then eaten by larger carnivorous plankton. Think of microscopic crab larvae. Look those up if you haven't ever seen those. Those are then eaten by a mussel or a barnacle or other marine invertebrates, which are then either eaten by sea stars, otters, seagulls, could be some kind of fish that chomps on them, or could be a human foraging. You have the superlittoral zone, which is above the highest high tide mark, and we're not going to talk about that. We are now going to talk about the four sections from highest to lowest, the spray zone, the high intertidal, the mid, and the low. If you were to look at a graph of these, it would be a downhill slant going from left to right, showing higher elevations to lower elevations. Lower elevation is where the water is going to be. The spray or splash zone is the upper part of the beach that occasionally gets splashed, but never gets covered by the ocean. Think of these as the sand dunes. This zone is more a part of the land than the ocean. Plants and animals in the spray zone have adapted to living exposed to the air, sun, rain, and even frost. This has the fewest amount of organisms. It's a sparse habitat with little vegetation. Snails, barnacles, isopods, lichens, lice, limpets, periwinkles, and whelks may live up here. It is a battered area by wind and salt and is detrimental to live there, but the organisms have adapted. If you want to talk about plant adaptations to intertidal zones, wow, we could we could go there if you want, but we're not going to because this is fly fishing. It's not botany podcast. Now, the high intertidal zone is flooded during the peaks of the once or twice daily high tides and out of the water for long stretches of time in between. Plants and animals are used to living above the water surface because they're exposed to air twice a day. Organisms here would be anemones, barnacles, brittle stars, chitons, crabs, green algae, isopods, limpets, mussels, sea stars, snails, whelks, and some marine vegetation. It's another great spot for foraging. The mid-tidal intertidal zone is generally submerged except for a period during the turn of low tide. It's a turbulent area. It's covered and covered twice a day with salt water from the tide. It's submerged at high tide and exposed at low tide. More plants and animals live here because they're not exposed to drying out conditions for too long. If you ever were in my biology class, and I've mentioned this before on the podcasts, the answer to pretty much everything in biology is increase surface area and prevent desiccation. These organisms will have evolved some way to prevent themselves from drying out. They adapt to wave action, which can be quite violent, and then they are also able to prevent drying out when the waves go away. Organisms include anemones, barnacles, chitons, crabs, 
green algae, isopods, limpets, mussels, sea lettuce, sea palms, sea stars, snails, sponges, and whelks. So you're starting to get more primitive organisms, including sponges. You're also starting to get protists and more plant life, like sea lettuce, which is ulva ulva, and sea palms and other types of algae. Closer to the water, more wet, more organisms can survive. The low intertidal zone is exposed to air for only a short period of time at low tide. Life here is adapted to underwater conditions. This is probably where you will be throwing your fly. The area between the average low tide level and the lowest tide level is here. This area stays wet during most low tides, making it an ideal home for many kind of organisms. These organisms are only exposed when the tide is unusually low. Organisms not built for being out of the water live here, and desiccation is a constant threat at extreme low tides. This is when the birds are going to go in and clean everything up that they can find that was stranded. I have a video of a blue heron in the tidal basin two years ago trying to eat a crucian carp that got stranded at high tide when the tide went out. The fish was too big to eat, yet it is comical to watch. Lots of food and nutrients are circulated in these nearshore warmer waters. Plankton and algae are abundant, and organisms include abalone, anemones, brown seaweed, chitons, crabs, green algae, hydroids, isopods, limpets, mussels, nudibranchs, sculpins, sea cucumbers, sea lettuces, sea palms, sea stars, sea urchins, shrimps, snails, sponges, more grasses, tube worms, and whelks. So you can see there is an absolute increase in the amount of organisms the closer you are to the water and the decrease the further you get. Tidal pools are fascinating places. I love to hang out in a tidal pool. If you had listened to my podcast on bucket list destinations, I have all sorts of Pacific Northwest tide pools listed because I want to go there and just flip things over and look for stuff. I got to do some in Hawaii. I got to play in tide pools in Cape Cod. I've got to play in some of them in the Keys. As a super biology nerd dude that I am, it is a great place to see organisms up close that normally you might not get to see. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. So the organisms within tide pools have had to adapt to extreme changes in salinity. They're able to survive fresh water influxes when it rains, and then they're able to withstand saltier conditions when all that water evaporates. So they can withstand rising salinity levels as the sun and wind evaporate the water, leaving the salt concentrated. This is how sea salt was originally created. Along the coast, people would fill up small man-made pools and then have the water drain out or evaporate, leaving behind the salt crystals. I've seen this in Hawaii, and I've also have pictures of one of these salt pools in Puerto Rico where the water was bright pink due to the algae that was living in it. And you also will get organisms highly adapted to living in high saline organisms like brine shrimp and brine flies. These are the locations where you will find flamingos. I have pictures from Swakopmund 
in Namibia where there were flamingos just milling around all these giant salt pond flats on the skeleton coast. It's pretty cool. And there was a hot dog stand outside one of the car factories there called Snoop Dogs Hot Dogs. And this was in the 90s. I thought that was pretty funny. I should have gotten a picture of that or at least a hot dog. But we were driving around taking a tour, so I didn't have time to stop. Weather and tides. Now, if you were to see my watch, I have barometric pressure graph. I have moon phases. Addition, I have tides. My watch also tells the time. So I can look at my watch and look outside and predict what the fishing will be like that day, if it's fishable or not. And this will be the part of the next podcast. I had to become a weather nerd more than I already was when I started guiding and fly fishing full time. Let's talk about weather and tides. Offshore winds may move water away from coastlines, exaggerating the low tide. Onshore winds may cause water to pile up on the shoreline, making the low tide higher than usual. Different weather conditions, such as wind and barometric pressure, create bigger differences in the water level than tides on places like lakes and seas. For instance, the Baltic Sea, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, and even the Mediterranean, the locations my in-laws used to visit when they lived in the Soviet Union. Additionally, high water level due to the thermal expansion of warmer water can sometimes mean that some of the highest tides of the year are not perigean spring tides. Low pressure is brought on by strong storms and hurricanes. There will be more babies born coastally during a hurricane than at any other time of year due to the low pressure forcing itself on the amniotic fluid and pushing it out. If you've ever had a fluid-filled barometric pressure gauge, it is the same method in which that water moves up and down. Low pressure can cause tides that are much higher than predicted, so look out. And low pressure systems may contribute to causing much higher tides than predicted. If the air is pushing down on the water, water cannot be constrained into a container. It's one of the properties of water, so it pushes it out and away. High pressure pushes down on sea levels, leading to low tides. The systems can lead to days with exceptionally low tides. Those are the days when you want to go exploring. I wish that I was able to do exploring on the river two years ago. This month, when we had the massive windstorm, when my neighbor Rugg's house was split in half by a tree and we ended up at the Lancaster Fly Fishing Show during that crazy three days of 60 mile an hour sustained gust. Absolute crazy stuff. The river, you could have walked to D.C. from Virginia and not gotten your shoes wet. I don't know where the fish went. They must have been blown out, but that's something for the next podcast. Now for geography and topography. The depth and shape of the ocean and the distance between continents determines the water level along the shores. Northern parts of North America, Europe, and Asia, the continents are closer together, creating a bigger difference between high and low tides than in areas farther south where continents are farther apart. Think of all the Scandinavian fjords that have super high water and then at low tide, the boats are 30 feet below sitting in mud. The average tidal range in the mid-ocean is around 1 meter or 3 feet, and tidal ranges can be more than 10 times higher in some coastal areas. Some of the highest tides can be located in the Bay of Fundy in Canada, where the difference between low and high tides can be up to 53 and a half feet or 16.3 meters. 
The highest tides in the United States can reach 12.2 meters or 40 feet near Anchorage, Alaska. And along the coast of the United Kingdom, the tidal range varies from as little as 1.6 feet or 0.5 meters to a maximum of 50 feet or 15 meters. Tidal rivers in some areas, the water drains away almost entirely at low tide. And if you want to be able to predict all of this, you need to know the rule of the twelfths. The sequence to remember in the twelfths is one, two, three, three, two, one. In the first hour after low tide, the water level will rise by one twelfth of the predicted tidal range in any given area. In the second hour, it will rise two twelfths. The third hour, it will rise three twelfths. The fourth hour, again, three twelfths. The fifth hour, down to two twelfths. And the sixth hour, down to one twelfth. What about some of those organisms that do live in these low tidal areas? They're exposed for several hours a day and they have evolved to adapt in harsh environments. They're able to live in shallow waters, able to burrow and close themselves up. All evolutionary adaptations to the harsh and one of the harshest environments in which they live. Some sand crabs will burrow and follow the tide to stay in constantly wet sand. Some predators advance onto tidal areas to search out these organisms as the tide rises. And you all know what that's going to be covered in the next podcast. So how do tides affect organisms living around intertidal zones? There are some tasty organisms. And if you've read Landon Cook's book on foraging, you're going to come across a lot of these. There are a lot of very healthy organisms that live along the coast. These sustained many populations of Native Americans throughout the pre-colonial times. And I don't want to get into that. So animals and plants that live in this zone must cope with being submerged in water and exposed to the air during different times of day. Some organisms grow more quickly than others so they can find the required space. Others grow in layers on top of each other to take up less room. At low tide, organisms hide in the sand for protection from waves and to stay moist. When water comes back at high tide, these animals may come out to feed. High tides also bring fish searching for their prey as invertebrates emerge from the sand. Think of bone fishing. Intertidal beaches supply food and habitat for both ocean and land animals. There's a variety of substrates that allow for numerous hiding spots. This makes me think back to fly fishing with David in Charleston and waiting for the tide to come in and watching all those crabs scattering about to escape the incoming tide and the snails that would climb up onto the grasses. And more sunlight is here for plants to grow, which also can lead to desiccation. Organisms can dry out their skin, their eyes, their gills. Some organisms will lick their eyes clean. Some organisms will have to wet them. Or some just don't have things that can get dried out. They've adapted. But constant waves bring food and oxygen to these organisms. And the waves are also destructive and can take organisms away. Organisms have adapted sticky suction-like feet to stick to the rocks with natural glues, suction feet, or they attach to the rocks by grabbing on. If you've ever tried to pull a chitin off of a rock, good luck. I doubt you've ever done it. These organisms also benefit from that increased oxygen level and then from food sources brought in from deeper areas during high tide. They're bringing in food that might not be available there normally. The salinity content will change with tides and some organisms, such as crabs, 
Marine snails and bivalves have thick, tougher outer coverings to prevent desiccation. Anybody knows that if you've seen a seagull drop a clamshell from 50 feet above a sidewalk where it cracks. That's a very distinctive loud cracking sound. And mussels and leaf barnacles cluster together to reduce individual exposure, which is why you can go and harvest a whole bunch of mussels from one location. And I learned a trick from Andrew Zimmern that if you cook your mussels in Sprite, it will take away some of the fishy stink to it. Another organism, the ochre sea star, we don't call them starfish anymore because they're not really fish. They can tolerate a longer time period exposed to air than many other sea stars. They can withstand up to eight hours of exposure during low tides. Some abalones, limpets, and turban snails can even smell approaching ochre stars and will move away to avoid being eaten. Periwinkles are snails that cluster in crevices. They secrete a glue-like mucus to stick to the rock surface and withdraw into their shells to avoid dying out. If you want to look up a strange fact about barnacles, find out what organ they have the largest of to any body-sized organism in the world. Sea cucumbers are beyond primitive. They are one of the first, if not first, animals ever to evolve. Crazy, bizarre animals. Some species may eviscerate themselves, leaving out or expelling their guts, leaving the entrails to predators while the sea cucumber slowly escapes. I don't know how fast you can escape, though, if you've got a pearlfish living up your bum. Look that up. Its organs regenerate several days after evisceration. Tide pool sculpins and young opalis can breathe air at the surface on an adaptation that enables them to survive in oxygen poor water when the tide is out. Think of snakeheads. If they're in the tidal pool and the tide goes out, they just got to lift their little mouth up and suck in some air. Birds are prolific along the shore and they can be seen nesting and feeding in intertidal zones. Many fish migratory patterns depend on the tides so do the feeding patterns of birds when you see the first osprey of the season here you should get very excited that means the herring and shatter coming in and the cormorants start coming in and then the terns and the seagulls and the herons start coming down to the river and it's absolute bird chaos turtles will propel themselves ashore during high tide to lay their many eggs in the sand above where the water is going to get them. Therefore, they can hatch and crawl down and swim off when ready. Fish around coastal areas will also wait out the moving tide to wash smaller fish out to sea or pull them into areas where food is abundant. If you ever hear me talk about a fishing report for striped bass on this local fishery we have, you find a narrow creek mouth with a moving tide where organisms are going to get moved back and forth. The little shrimp and mosquito larvae are going to be eaten by the baby shad. The baby shad are going to be eaten by the stripers. The stripers then going to be eaten by the bald eagle. There you have it. At low tide, many of the creatures are exposed to air, leaving them at risk of predator attacks and oxygen depletion. So you want to flip over rocks and dig holes and basically hunt for things that are hidden when the tide comes up. There are some tide misconceptions. There is no scientific evidence supporting that humans are affected by the tides. The amount of liquid in a human body is far from big enough to experience tidal pulls. Scientists have conducted studies that haven't found anything significant that can link supermoons to natural disasters. And now for the bizarre, strange facts that were thoroughly enjoyable to research for you these are things that you might never have heard anywhere else than on the Fly Fishing Consultant podcast. A study in the journal Epilepsy and Behavior in 2004 found no connection between epileptic seizures and the full moon. 
A 2005 study by the Mayo Clinic. Mm, Mayo. I think we're down to one bottle of Dukes right now. Uh, the Mayo Clinic research was reported in the journal Psychiatric Services looked at how many patients checked into a psychiatric emergency department between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. over several years. They found no statistical difference in the number of visits on the three nights surrounding full moons versus other nights. For the 2014 study, researchers led by Vardiner Palmer of Queen's University, Ontario, Canada, looked at psychiatric emergency department visits around the night of the full moon. Six hours... 12 hours and 24 hours before and after the full moon during the 12 hours before and after a full moon the emergency doctors saw significantly more patients with personality disorders as well as with more urgent triage scores those who needed more urgent care however fewer patients with anxiety disorders showed up during the 12 hours and 24 hours prior to and following the full moon there has been no research upon the cat lady from Florida or Joe exotic about the effects of the moon and their behavior. Researchers examined 150,999 records of emergency room visits to a suburban hospital. Their study reported an American journal of emergency medicine in 1996 found no difference at full moon versus other nights in studying 11,940 cases at the Colorado State University Veterinary Medical Center, researchers found the risk of emergency room visits for pets to be 23% higher for cats and 28% higher for dogs on the days surrounding full moons. I would like to know what a shirt for Colorado State University Veterinary Medical Center looks like. Can you even fit that on the hat? And lastly, a pair of conflicting studies in the British Medical Journal in 2001 leaves room for further research. In one of the studies, animal bites were found to have sent twice as many British people to the emergency room during full moons compared with other days. However, a similar study in Australia, dogs were found to bite people with similar frequency on any night. Let's talk about the Great Lakes now. The Great Lakes in the U.S., have a tidal range less than 5 centimeters or just under 2 inches. Different weather conditions such as wind and barometric pressure creates a bigger difference in the water level than tides on these lakes. According to NOAA, NOAA, these minor variations are masked by the greater fluctuations in lake levels produced by wind and barometric pressure changes. Consequently, the Great Lakes are considered to be essentially non-tidal. And that is the end of the podcast all about tides. For more information, you can always contact me for my notes. And be sure to contact me if you need any shad flies, bass flies, or some trout flies. In the meantime, while you're stuck at home, everyone, please be safe. Enjoy being with your family. Go fishing if you can. Tie flies if you can. And you can also watch some of my new YouTube videos where I'm discussing and then tying specific fly patterns. So let's finish this up now and send this off to producer Jason. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king. But who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver. Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.